0: Chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 will be our reading today. Let us hear the word of God, Joseph. Let us hear the word of God, starting with Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers... These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the numbers of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many priests became obedient to the faith. So is the reading of God's most holy and righteous word. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, here I am again. Um, as many of you may or, or probably don't remember, it's been exactly two days shy of a year since I last had the opportunity to fill in for Pastor Dean and deliver you deliver God's word to you um, on the Lord's Day. And oh, what a year it's been! In fact, knowing that I would be delivering the last sermon that most of you would hear for 2020, I felt as if I as if I should be very deliberate in choosing a passage to preach preach on that would serve as an, appropriately, uh, an appropriate close to a year filled with so many difficulties, a year filled with so many uncertainties, so much anxiety, and a year filled with so much loss. However, truth be told, I ended up choosing to stick with a passage that I had chosen before 2019 had even, even ended. You see, in deciding what I was going to preach on last year at this time, I had narrowed my choices down to two passages from the New Testament. One was the choice that I ultimately made, and I went ahead and I preached on 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But the other passage was was our passage today here in Acts chapter 6. And at that time, I had decided whatever passage I would refrain from preaching that I would save till the next time I was asked to fill in on the pulpit. And I was drawn to this passage today because I noticed that the biblical office of deacon was something that was often misunderstood or something that was most often overlooked in the broader evangelical church today. All too often we tend to look at deacons as nothing more than full-time ushers or the people we, we go and get if there's a leak in the bathroom sink or just the ones in charge of the collections or the ones that count the money. Sometimes we, t- we view the office of deacon as a training program for future elders of the church. But as we're going to see here in chapter 6, the office of deacon was established to fulfill a very specific need in the church. As I studied these seven verses in, pre- in, in preparation for today's sermon, I began to realize that even though they had a lot to say about the of- office of deacon, there was also a significant amount they had to say about the church as a whole. A significant amount they had to say to a church such as Pope Presbyterian Church in Opelousas, Louisiana, at the end of a year such as 2020. And as any of you who have read or even studied the book of Acts already knows, this is really just part two of Luke's gospel. Um, as we see in the very first words of the book of Acts, Luke begins with these words in verses 1 through 3, saying, In the first book, O Theopolis, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. You see, that first book that Luke was talking about was the Gospel of Luke. This was the passage he was referring to. And the Gospel of Luke ended with the ascension of our Lord, and that's exactly where Luke picks up in the first, act, first chapters of Acts. And within these early cha- chapters of his writing of the Book of Acts, Luke, Luke gives us an historical account of the beginnings of the early Christian church. And throughout church history, pastors and theologians all have viewed the Book of Acts as pivotal, pivotal to informing us and helping us understand the doctrine of the church. Or in other words, what those, um, what's referred to by those who wear the fancier caps and gowns at the graduation ceremonies as ecclesiology. For example, it's the book of Acts in Acts chapter 2 that we learn what the fellowship of believers should look like. Acts chapter 2 verse 42 describes the greatest church, church growth program ever to be implemented. Saying, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. We see in Acts chapter 15, the first ecumenical council takes place when there's disagreement and when there's a dispute over circumcision. And the apostles and the elders gather together to settle that dispute, much like we do in presbyteries today or in the in the church courts. And we need to remember that when questions arise about how we are to conduct the affairs of the church, Questions such as how are we to conduct our worship. Questions about the qualifications for office holders and how they should be chosen. How should we use our limited resources? What does a healthy church look like? And how does Christ grow his church? We are looked to God's word to find those answers. All too often we are drawn to seek out the perceived wisdom of the world. To look for the wisdom of marketing gurus. To rely on statistical surveys and multi-stage strategic plans. We We often look to emulate the latest cultural trends. To think that if we could just find a hip enough pastor from the proper age demographic. Or feature musical performances that draw the proper emotional responses. Well then we'll be effective at making disciples. We often like to proclaim that we're a biblical church. But when we find ourselves at a loss, the Bible is often the last place we look. So as we come to this passage at the beginning of Acts chapter 6 today, let us look at three things that these seven verses have to say to the wider church today. Three things that we should have in mind as we live and work in this time between the already and the not yet. And between the time of our Lord's ascension and his return at the end of this fading evil age. The first is we're going to look at the persecuted church. The second, we're going to look at God's provision. And third, we're going to look at God's promises fulfilled. And on to our first point, the persecuted church. We must be very careful. We must take care not to forget that the church of Christ has a very determined enemy. An enemy who works tirelessly, Against the church. An enemy who is constantly seeking to rob God of his glory. And that enemy is Satan. The one of whom the book of Revelation refers to as the serpent of old. He has been at work since the garden. When he had deceived our first parents into eating the, the, the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Transgressing God's law. Failing at that covenant of works. Throwing all of humanity and all of God's image bearers under the curse of sin and death. And ever since the fall upon hearing God's promise, in Genesis 3.15, that from the seed of the woman, one one would come who would reverse the curse and who who would crush the head of the father of lies. Well, he has been seeking, he has been at work seeking to thwart the will of God. We see immediately he goes after Eve's firstborn sons, tipping Cain to murder Abel. In hearing that God's in hearing God's covenant made with Abraham, he restlessly pursues the Old Testament patriarchs. And learning from that the line of, that from the line of David would come one whom God would establish the throne of His kingdom forever, the enemy worked tirelessly to end that line. At times, didn't it seem like the serpent had won? times like in 2 Kings chapter 11 when the daughter of Ahab Athaliah rises up and murders the entire royal family however in God's providence he preserves however in God's providence he preserves that line when Joash is hidden away then at the birth of the promised Christ Satan drove King Herod to seek out all of the male children in Bethlehem and the surrounding region 2 years old and younger And have them put to to death. And now. Now knowing that he has failed. Satan is perfectly aware. That Jesus Christ. The promised redeemer has succeeded. Where the first Adam failed. That the son of the living God. Has provided the perfect atoning sacrifice. Freeing his elect from the power of sin and death. Securing them. Securing for them. Everlasting life. And eternal glory. Yes, Satan has been defeated, but as the apostle tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And today he works tirelessly to prevent the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the main ways he seeks to accomplish that is by persecuting his church. And as we come to Acts chapter 6, we see that for the third time since Pentecost, this newly formed church experiences some type of persecution. We see in Acts chapter 4 when Peter, Peter and John are arrested and thrown in prison for preaching the gospel. And they are brought before their temple accusers. And what do they do when they're brought before their accusers? They continue to preach the gospel. They point to a crippled man proclaiming that that it is through Jesus of Nazareth, the one whom they had crucified, the one who had risen from the dead, that this man was standing before them. After his accusers realized that there was no reasonable opposition to what they were proclaiming, the members of the high priestly family were forced to let let Peter and John go. Then we see in Acts chapter 5, we see lying and deceit enter into the congregation when Ananias and Sapphira uh, choose to hide their proceeds from a sale of their land from the apostles. In order to keep this falsehood and deceit out of the church at such a volatile and crucial time as its beginning, the Lord dealt swiftly with Ananias and Sapphira and struck them dead where they stood. And what does verse verse 11 of chapter 5 tell us? And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. The Reformation Study Bible goes on to say, in the wake of God's judgment of Ananias and Sapphira, no sincere superficial followers dared to identify with the church. All recognize that Christ's spirit imposes high standards of integrity on the holy community that he indwells. And now we come finally to chapter 6, and we already see that the seeds of division are being sown in the church. Acts 6 verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Before we move on, it's important to talk about exactly who these Hellenists were. And here what Luke is referring to when he refers to the Hellenists are those Greek-speaking Jews who had left, who had left Israel, who had left Jerusalem, and went out into the dispersion of the Roman Empire, and they had picked up and adopted the Greek language. And after returning from the dispersion, they came back to live in Israel. And these particular Jews had come back to live in Jerusalem. And they were speaking Greek. In this case, they had joined the early Christian church in Jerusalem. And these Greek-speaking Jews in this particular case felt that their widows were being neglected in the distribution of food. And as we can see here in chapter 6, they brought this matter to the apostles. Now the Bible doesn't tell us whether or not this was a real intentional neglect. It could have been a simple oversight on the part of the apostles. It could it it it, um, it could have been um, that those in charge of distributing this food um, had a misunderstanding amongst themselves. It could it could have been a misunderstanding or just someone responding to inaccurate rumors. Or these complaints may have arisen out of a conflict out of conflict and animosity between two separate groups. But whatever the case, these compl- complaints had the potential to sow the seeds of division and jealousy among the congregation. Such division would do harm to its witness, weakening its fellowship among the believers, fellowship that is so essential to the healthy life of the church. Because you see, all too often. We're all too willing participants in Satan, in the work of Satan. Our sinful natures are often all too willing to cooperate. Now here in verse 2, when Luke goes on to refer to the 12, he's referring to the 12 apostles of Jesus. Remember, although that Judas had hung himself, he was replaced by, by Matthias in Acts chapter 1. And the 12 apostles who had authority in the early church knew that this was something that just could not be ignored. This was not a problem that they just should have sat on and waited to see if it went away. For one thing, division in the church can be a very destructive force. But for another, to fail to act would be a failure to follow the Lord's commandment to love thy neighbor. And that brings us to our second point of focus, God's provision for his church. The apostles were quick at recognizing the seriousness of this attack on the church. They wasted no time in summoning the full number of the disciples. And here in this context, verse 2, we need to note that the word disciples is referring to all faithful Christians. They called together the entire congregation, which by that time had grown quite large. We see the church beginning to grow from Acts chapter 2, from the time of Pentecost. You see, the apostles had just graduated from three years of teaching from, pro- from the best theologian to ever walk the face of the earth. Their seminary teacher was Jesus Christ himself. And immediately they were able to recognize this attack upon the church for what it was. It was an attack of, on the very gospel itself. You see, Satan knew a little theology too. He knew that if he could twist the use of God's commandments and distract the apostles from proclaiming the gospel of Christ, if he could cause them to neglect the ministry of prayer, well, maybe, maybe he could just put a stop to this whole church growth movement in Jerusalem here and now. As theologian Michael Harton noted in his book Crisis Christianity, Professor Harton goes to... to, goes on to pose the question, what would things look like if Satan really took control of a city? He goes on to state, over half a century ago, Presbyterian minister Donald Gray Barnhouse offered his own scenario in his weekly sermon that was also broadcast nationwide on CBS radio. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, all of the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished. And pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ was not preached. Oh, if he could just get the apostles to forget the Lord's commandment to make disciples by preaching and teaching them to observe all that he had commanded. You see, the enemy knew that what the Apostle Paul would later write in Romans 10, verses 14 through 17 was in fact true. The Apostle Paul writing, How then will they call on him who they they have have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news but they have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says the Lord who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Look how forcefully the apostles respond in verse two. No ambiguity about it. It is not right that we should give up, that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now let's be careful here. We have to be careful. This is not teaching that the work of serving tables is something that is beneath the apostles. Something that should be put on the back burner until everything else gets done. The church is by no means to neglect this responsibility to care for widows and orphans or to look after the poor. As we're taught in James 1 verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What the apostles are simply saying here is that there's a lot to be done in the church, and they can't do everything. So God made provision for his church by providing the church with the office of deacon to serve the needs of the people. And we, have a congreg- and we as a congregation need to remember that when it comes to our pastor. He's just one man. There's a lot to be done here at Hope Presbyterian Church. And our pastor can't do everything. We have deacons and we have elders. And we should allow, we should go to them to give him time to prepare, to to study the Word of God, to prepare the Word of God, to pray for the congregation. Because that's what a healthy church looks like. Functioning together. Leaving time for the Word of God To be focused upon. Look at verses 3 through 6. Here the apostles command the congregation to pick from among themselves men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom they will appoint to this duty. Luke goes on to tell us that they were very well pleased with what the, the gathering is very well pleased with what they had heard. Seven were chosen and the apostles prayed and laid hands on them. And the office of deacon was established in Christ church. This is exactly how we do, do, we do this today when we ordain elders and deacons. The congregation selects them. They're vetted. They're trained. And they come up here before you. And the elders and the pastors lay hands on them and pray. This practice has been going on for over 2,000 years in Christ church. And deacons, you, you, your office is an office that that has been established much longer than most of the offices that are, that are prestigious here before us today. Your office is older than the, than the mayor's office, than the congressional offices. Your office is older than the one held by the President of the United States. So take heart. Remember. Remember the service that you're given. Remember the honor it is to serve to serve the Lord and meeting the needs of his people. This office continues in the church today, and as we see here in the apostolic church in Jerusalem, the the true church of Christ today still ordains qualified men to serve in this holy office established by the word of God, established to care for the poor, to make sure that widows and orphans don't go without, to look after the physical needs of the congregation. And not only are they to administer to this work, but they are to exhort the congregation. They are to exhort us to show mercy to others, to show mercy to those around us, to each other and those around us. They encourage the congregation to look beyond our own needs, to provide our time and our resources to those in need to feed and to shelter and to provide clothing and medical care for those who go without. And ultimately, the work of deacons is to point us to Jesus Christ. Imagine what the outside world thinks when they take notice of a fully functional and effective diaconal ministry. They look at it, and you know what they say? They say, wow, there must be something to that gospel that's preached there in that Presbyterian church on the corner. There must be something to it. Look at look 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 at the way they love one another. Look at the way they care for one another. Look at the way they care for those around them. Look at the way they give up their resources and their time. There must be something there. Look at the way they show up all together to church every morning, every, every, every Lord's day. There must be something to this. You see, the church's di- diaconal ministry shows us our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ was the archetypal deacon. And we know this because that's just what the Apostle Paul tells us, writing in Romans 15, verses 8 through 9. Paul writes this, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to conform the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore for I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. You see that word servant there in your Bibles used to describe Christ? That's The Greek word used there is diakonos, deacon. You see, Paul here calls Christ a deacon, a servant. The son of the living God came down into this world and brought himself low to meet the needs of his people. And not only did he heal the sick, Not only did he raise the dead, feed the hungry. Not only did he show compassion for the outcast and encourage the lost. Not only did he meet our temporal needs. But he met our most pressing need. He dealt with our sin. You see, ever since Adam's fall in the garden, we have been under the curse of sin. Unable to faithfully keep the commandments of God. Committing cosmic treason against the one who made us, the one who sustains us with the very breath of life. Separated from God, deserving eternal punishment for our constant transgressions. However, not only did Jesus Christ become flesh, taking on the form of a humble servant. But he lived a life of perfect submission and obedience to God's holy law. That life that we should have lived. He succeeded where the first Adam failed. And that is why the Apostle Paul refers refers to Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as the last Adam. And although he was blameless under the law, he allowed himself to be led, to be led by sinners to the cross at Calvary, to be tortured, to be humiliated, to have the full wrath of God the Father poured out upon him, taking our place, bearing our punishment, the punishment that we deserve, the sinless for the sinful. And with his last dying breath before giving up his spirit on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, Scripture tells us that the curtain of the temple that represented the separation of the holy God from unholy, defied, defiled sinners was torn in two. And the gateway to the throne room of heaven was open. The head of the serpent had been crushed. Freedom from the power of the curse of sin and death was secured for all those who would believe and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And, loved ones, today you can know and you can have confidence. That that righteousness that he earned, that the penalty that he paid, he paid for you. That his righteousness is yours. That you stand justified before the Father because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. If you believe and trust in him. And that brings us to our last point god 's promises fulfilled not only did God keep his promise to free us from the power of sin and death, his promise to redeem a people unto himself, he also continues today to fulfill his promise made in matthew sixteen eighteen telling his apostles, "I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see, Jesus Christ did not stay dead, just as he foretold to his disciples. Three days after his death and burial, he was resurrected from the grave. Demonstrating that he had the power over death. Proving that he was the one true Messiah, the very Son of God. The one whom through which our sins could be forgiven and our eternal life granted. And for 40 days he appeared to many, spending much of that time with his disciples. And as Luke tells us, they spoke about the kingdom. And he prepared them to lead the early church as he would continue to fulfill his promise. That he would build his church, and his word would go out to all of the nations. Look at our final verse here in this passage, Acts chapter Acts chapter six verse seven. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And if we need any evidence, if we need any evidence that the Lord has been faithful for now well over 2,000 years, all we have to do is look around us here at Hope Presbyterian Church in Opelousas, Louisiana. I don't have to remind any of you that we are not the seat of a mighty empire, that we're not a place where the latest fad philosophies and religions are brought forth and tried out or examined and put to the test. Yet here we are, Here we are meeting every Lord's day to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed. To continue to do what the early church did in Jerusalem from the beginning. To devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. And to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. And to the prayers. And as the Lord continues to gather his elect through the proclamation of the the gospel. Christians throughout the world from every tribe, tongue and nation continue to meet every Lord's day. As we wait in anticipation for the end of this fading evil age. That day when the Lord fulfills his promise to return to judge the living and the dead. That day when the Lord returns to punish the wicked. That day when he returns to establish his His kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth. A day when the dwelling place of God will be with man. The day when he shall wipe away every teardrop from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning nor crying nor pain for the former things have passed away. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the, the provisions that you have given your church for the office of deacon. We thank you, Lord, for your promises for your promise is fulfilled, for freeing us from the power of sin and death, for crushing the head of the serpent. We pray that you would continue to guard us, to guard us as we live and work in this time between the already and the not yet, that we would continue, Lord, faithfully in devoting ourselves to the gospel, to the teaching of the gospel, to the preaching of the gospel, to the breaking of bread, and the fellowship of believers. We thank you, Lord, for your, your continued promise and the promise that we look forward to return of your Son, Jesus Christ, and life everlasting. Amen.